All right. Good morning. Wow. Packed house on a holiday weekend. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm on staff here at Hope, and I'm an elder here at Hope Lower Town. Uh, one thing I was realizing as I was driving in this morning was this is by slide count. We'll have slides on the screen here. The most slides I've ever had in a sermon, so it's possibly going to be one of the longer sermons I've ever done here, which I realized is when we have kids in the service. So I was my mistake. Uh, it shows what kind of operation we're running here. One quick note I do have. Uh, if you have your kids in here, I want you to feel zero shame about any noises they make or any actions they do. Uh, hopefully that's true every week and any time kids are in here, but certainly today. Uh, and I could use a little call and response, so that maybe we'll have some of that. I want to talk first about substitute teachers. If you guys are familiar with this sketch from Key and Peel, uh, sorry in advance. If your name is Aaron or Blake, I will never call you by your appropriate name. I will call you Aaron or Balake because of this sketch. Um, but I want to talk about substitute teachers. You know, we have them growing up. I don't. You maybe don't have a substitute teacher anymore, but uh, they come in right when a teacher's sick or on vacation or uh, you name it, right? And, and students test them. That's the point of this sketch is actually he expects to be tested and is not. They're just compliant and happy, but then he's like overreacting because he's trying to establish authority. I think sometimes substitute teachers feel like maybe they don't have the authority. Sometimes the students feel like the teacher, you're not our real teacher, so they don't have to listen, which is why if you ever do substitute teaching, anyone in here, if you do, just play a movie. It doesn't even matter. Just play a movie, because who cares? Um, but, no, but, the, but they're just a stopgap, right? They're filling in for the real teacher. And we're going to look at something today where uh, we're going to see a substitution. We're going to see a filling in for a real thing. Uh, fill it out later. Ben's loving that link there. Uh, so this week's sermon is the Passover lamb uh, from Exodus 12, 23. We've been in this sermon series called The Bible, The Story of the Bible in 16 Verses where we've been looking at just kind of one verse each week and how that helps to portray the story of the Bible. So thus far, we've looked at creation. God created us and the human beings, and he created us very good, but we get to the fall and sin enters the world. And now things aren't very good, uh, and we're not very good. And so right away, though, he promises redemption, that the seed of the woman, this offspring of Eve down the road, is going to crush the seed of the serpent, or in that case, the devil. And so the way that seed or that lineage is going to be carried on first is through Abraham in the Bible, and he's called in Genesis chapter 12 to bring blessing to the nations, that he's going to have an heir who will one day do that. And, and it's kind of wild to see that Abraham is really not a, a great dude at all. He's not that impressive of a dude, and yet God chooses him. And then even, and maybe even worse dude, Judah the king, is another one who receives a promise that the lineage is of this one who is to come is going to go through Judah the king. And that leads us to this week, the Passover lamb. But previously on the Bible, right, if you think about TV shows, previously on, right, previously on the Bible, just to give us some context for where we are today, uh, from the book, uh, The Story of the Bible in 16 Verses by Chris Bruno, he says this. After Abraham's family went down to Egypt in the time of Joseph, they settled there and started to multiply. During the next four centuries, they grew from the 70-person family that Jacob led down from Palestine into a nation of around 2 million people who became known as the Israelites after a name, 
a new name that God had given to Jacob, Israel. Unsurprisingly, the Egyptians saw them as a threat, especially after a new royal dynasty that didn't know Joseph came to power. So Joseph was kind of friends with the Pharaoh, and then that Pharaoh passes, and a new royal dynasty comes, and they don't know these people. So the Egyptians enslaved the family of Abraham and forced them into hard labor. They were still not in God's promised land, and they were under the oppression of the Egyptians. The fact is, they needed to be rescued. And that oppression looked like worse and worse slavery, kind of in the early parts of the book of Exodus. And then it looked like Pharaoh, out of the threat he felt like from the Israelites, saying, we must throw the Hebrew boys into the Nile, the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile, in order that their lineage would be cut off so that they don't multiply and possibly overtake us. And then we get the story of Moses, right? He's spared out of the Nile. And the people are in worse and worse slavery. And Exodus chapter 2 ends this way. Sorry, in verse 23, it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Other translations say God looked on the Israelites and God knew. He's remembering, I've made this covenant with Abraham and with his offspring, and I've got to fulfill that. And so there from the story, we get kind of this epic theater, this battlefield between God and Pharaoh, as it were, between God the creator and these false gods. And so he uses these plagues to show I'm the God who actually controls this thing, whether it's frogs or locusts or you name it. And we get the nine plagues and then the 10th plague is promised and that he's gonna slaughter the firstborn, God is, the the angel of death, the destroyer, is gonna come and slaughter the firstborn of the Egyptians. And the reason God is doing these plagues is because he's told Pharaoh, let my people go that they may come out and worship me. I think sometimes we hear this, how could God judge that way? And then we realize in the story, Pharaoh actually had done it first. Pharaoh actually had killed Israelite firstborns first, but even more so, God is saying, this is a worship issue. I want you to let my people go that they may worship me. You are not doing that, and you resist, therefore, judgment. And so this 10th and final plague then is shown in Exodus chapter 12. We get the story of the Passover. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are determined the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats." Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. A real quick note on that, if you'll notice... He said, take the lamb on the 10th day. 
So the lamb is here going to be slaughtered on the 14th day, which means the lamb was in the home for four days. This lamb was a friend, a family member, a pet. They, they love this lamb as it dwelt among them. Continuing on. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So they're dressed to travel. They're dressed to get out of Dodge. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. God just showing his distinction. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Continuing on in Exodus 12, it says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both sides until, of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. And then here's our verse for today. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And then he continues, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So this Passover has been now instituted. This night is gonna happen. And then it's actually, I want you to celebrate this night going forward. I'm calling the celebration before the event and I want you to establish this so you always remember my mercy and your deliverance. And so the night happens. The angel of the Lord goes by and there's two very different experiences. The Israelites are spared because of the blood of the lamb which is on their doorposts. The firstborn of the Egyptians from Pharaoh all the way down to slave people including animals, are slaughtered. And God has done a great reversal of what Pharaoh attempted to do. When Pharaoh attempted to kill off the lineage of God's people, God instead pronounces judgment on Pharaoh. And the people, his people experience that as the firstborns are slaughtered. And because of this, finally, rebellious Pharaoh breaks and says, fine, get out, get out. God now has used this event of judgment to deliver his people and bring them into worship of him. In the book, Chris Bruno says it this way. In a very direct way, God rescued his people with the blood of the Passover lambs. Because the lambs were sacrificed, the people did not have to die. Because the blood of the lambs was spilt, the firstborn sons in Abraham's family were safe. It had to be this way because the Egyptians were not the only ones under a death sentence. This is something we've really got to understand here. The Israelites were just as guilty, if not more so. While the Egyptians were guilty of worshiping lots and lots of other gods, the Israelites were guilty both of idolatry 
That's worshiping of other gods and of doubting God's promises to save them. He continues, the lambs died so that the firstborn sons would not. Although we saw hints of it before, and we'll look at some of those, this is one of the earliest clear examples of the important biblical principle of substitution. The Passover lambs were substitutes for the firstborn in Israel. In this first Passover, God considered the sacrifices of lambs to be sufficient to save his people from judgment, at least for the moment. So in this way, the Old Testament is actually going to announce the celebration beforehand. It's going to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus to us before it actually happens. And the way it's going to do that is from this idea of substitution. And so in the Passover story, we get this very clear example of this lamb who is sacrificed, whose blood is shed, and that covers the guilt of the people that spares them from judgment for their wrongdoing. And so there was a million ways we could have looked at this Passover story and what it means for us and what it tells us through the rest of the Bible. But for this purpose, we're going to look at a biblical theology of substitution. What a biblical theology is, is just reading the story from left to right as like a good thriller or like any book. It becomes more and more clear and evident what the story is and what it's all about as we move left to right. A biblical theology takes this theme of substitution. We're going to look at how it gets more and more clear throughout the storyline of the Bible. As we remember, this is how we read the Bible. We read the Bible from left to right. We start in Genesis, the story of creation, right away then in Genesis 3, the fall. We read the rest of the story left to right. We see in God's redemption and then ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and then the end of the story, full restoration. That's how we read the Bible. That's what we'll be doing as we do a biblical theology, but at the same time, we interpret the Bible or we understand the Bible through the lens of Jesus. That when Jesus comes, he does something and is someone who all the Bible points to. Everything in the scriptures is fulfilled in Jesus. Therefore, it becomes most vivid when we see him and what he does. He makes everything clear because he's what the Bible is all about. He's just like, if you remember, he's just like these glasses in the movie National Treasure. When we come to the Bible, we put on the lens of Jesus in the same way that Nick Cage, American icon, puts on these glasses so that in the movie National Treasure, he can see clearly the treasure map. When we have the lens of Jesus on as we read the Bible, we get to see all the treasures of the gospel, which is what John does in the New Testament in John chapter 1, verse 29, when it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as we do this biblical theology of substitution and of Lamb, how can John say this? How can he get there? What is he looking back at in the Old Testament to get there? So let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. And God responds to that sin with grace. It says in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and his wife, or Adam and his wife, and clothed them. So they're naked and ashamed because of their sin, and God sacrifices an animal and clothes them. He covers over Adam and Eve despite their shame and sin. Then we move on right away into Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. The famous story where Cain works the ground and he offers God a sacrifice of the fruit of the ground. And Abel 
sacrifices a lamb. And God accepts Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain's sacrifice, and for that reason, Cain murders Abel. But there's something about Abel's sacrifice. What is it? I think Abel looked back to that first thing in Genesis 3. I think his parents told him the story. We sinned, we were naked and ashamed. God killed the animal and covered us. And Abel said, there's something about the death of an animal that God wants to use. So I put my faith in this and I'm offering this as a sacrifice to God. And in faith, he offers what Cain does not. Cain offers the works of his hands to God. God does not accept his works and instead accepts Abel's sacrifice, there's something Abel understood about sacrifice. Moving forward in the story, one of the most intense scenes in the Bible. God has promised this child to Abraham, Isaac, and now the child is here. And in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, take Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And so the two men, and I think the story reads best that Isaac was also an adult man at this time, Other people will say sometimes that he was a child, but I think he was a man. The two men ascend the mountain, Abraham in faith of God and Isaac in faith of his father. And they get to the mountain where the sacrifice is to be offered. And Abraham is thinking, this is my child of promise. Even if he dies, God would bring him back because God promised him to me. And we get this innocent question from Isaac. He asks his father, Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. And just as he's about to bring the knife down and sacrifice Isaac, we get this picture. The ram comes and takes the place. Isaac will be be spared and the ram will be sacrificed. And when Abraham sees that, he gives God a name. He says, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And in that, Abraham tells us something about the gospel. Then we get to what we saw in Exodus 12 with the Passover. Again, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. And then they take the blood and they put it on the doors. And again, it says, on the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. But the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So it's a lamb, an unblemished lamb or a lamb without defect that has to be used. And then this blood becomes a sign for the people that they are covered by the blood of the lamb. Therefore, no judgment will befall them. And so the people experience the great exodus and then are called into covenant with God. And in that covenant, we get the book of Leviticus. What most people would say is probably the hardest book of the Bible to read and the most boring. And when you start a Bible reading plan, you get there and you're like, I'm done. I I tap out. You got me. You beat me, Bible. But Leviticus is actually going to tell us the gospel in advance. In Leviticus 16, the time of the Day of Atonement, where all of Israel's sins would be covered, and therefore they could draw near to the Lord through the high priest, it says this, starting in verse 7. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, so that these two goats God asked the people to, uh, to bring through the priest. 
He is to cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. So one of the two goats is going to be sacrificed for sin. What about the other goat? Continuing on in Leviticus 16, it says, verse 21, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness." So this one goat sacrifice dying and another goat being cast out, removed for the rebellion, the wickedness, and the sin of the Israelites has been put on it. And it now represents that being taken away from God's sight, removed from the people. Again, a foreshadow of what we're gonna see. But then we might ask, why all this blood? What's the deal with these sacrifices? Leviticus 17 gives us a little clarity into that. Starting in verse 10. God says, I will set my face against any Israelite or foreigner residing among them who eats blood and I will cut them off from the people for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. So we learn something there in verse, seven, or verse 11. The life is in the blood. So the life of the animal and its blood being spilt in some way makes atonement, covers over, puts back at right the people who have all sinned. It is the blood that makes atonement for life. So it's a, in essence, life for life, the blood of the animal for the life of the guilty sinner that makes this atonement, but this is temporary. And as we look at the story, the Israelites are going to continue to sin and sin and sin, and we continue to sin and sin. And so even in the Old Testament, they're starting to see that this is not efficient. This isn't working. Psalm 40 says it this way. In Psalm 40, there's someone who's speaking. The author's writing, but it's as if someone's speaking, and that person says this. Started in verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. What? You set it up this way and now you don't even want it? I'm realizing something. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sinner offerings that you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. Sounds like there's this one who's to come who's going to do the will. David gets this in Psalm 51 as he kind of is a little prophetic here. After he's sinned, he's, he's praying that God would restore him. And he says in verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice, but I, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So there's something more needed. I'm seeing that. And yet what you do want is someone who trusts in your mercy. Someone who puts their faith and repents. Someone who believes that you're going to deliver them. But we still don't know what that looks like. And so we move forward in the story to the prophet, Isaiah chapter 53, who's going to call out something that's to come. Starting in verse 6, it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's him? 
Verse seven, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was punished. So we now have further in the story, this man who is to be like a lamb, this man who's gonna be oppressed and afflicted and taken away in judgment without anyone to care. This man who's gonna be cut off and he's gonna do that as the end of verse eight says, for the people. So then we've gotta ask, who is this man? Isaiah, who is this man? And that's where we get back to John, chapter one. Need a little help then. John chapter one says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is this man? Who is this Lamb? Who will put things right? Jesus. Jesus is the one who will cover our nakedness and shame. Jesus is the Lamb that God provides that Abraham foresaw. Jesus is the true Passover Lamb. He is both the sin offering in his death and the scapegoat who takes away sin. He's the one who says, here I am to do your will. And he does the will of God by going to a cross. Hebrews 10 says, <laughs> this could be fun. Then he said, here I am. This is talking of Jesus as the speaker of Psalm 40. Here I am, I've come to do your will. What is that will? He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. He's the one who comes, and his body and his death makes us holy. Starts to put an end to our sinning, declares us to be okay in God's sight. That he's the real thing, not the stopgap. And so what does that look like? Romans 1 describes it this way. Or sorry, Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. We saw already the law of the prophets pointing to Jesus. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, between anyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption, the buying out of slavery that came by Christ Jesus. And now here we see how God provides. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's what Abel taught us. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So Jesus is the true sacrifice of atonement, the one who takes away the judgment and brings in the blessing. 
so that God can, on the one hand, judge sin, and on the other hand, justify sinners, declare them to be, as Hebrews 10 told us, holy. He's the one who makes it so that we can be justified. And this teaches us something, because you may have heard it said in church, for example, the problem is out there. In society, in the culture, and people that don't believe in Jesus, and take a posture of looking down on others. And if you really think about it, we could look down, and we do look down on people all the time. Think about when you scroll social media, a lot of times, I'm like, oh, they did that. I don't know. Just when you drive, think about when you're driving, you're like, oh, that guy, terrible driver. Not me. Maybe somebody doesn't believe the same politics as you, the same social causes, they're the problem. But the gospel is going to tell us something different. The gospel and this idea of substitution are going to attack that self-righteousness factory that is in our heart that tells us, look down on others because you're better than them. Because it's going to tell us, I didn't do this. I was saved by the grace of another. I didn't get me here. It wasn't my own goodness that did this. We may have heard it said in culture. And actually, this one leaks into us in the church as well. The problem is out there in, and you name it, outside forces, systems, corrupt leaders, my circumstances or the circumstances someone else has put on me. Now, there are problems in those things, of course, but here's what we miss when we only take that view. We are, as the Bible teaches us and substitution teaches us, enslaved by not a problem out there first and foremost, but the problem in here my sin. The foundational building block of the problem is me. I'm part of the problem. That's what the gospel's telling us. Rebellion from God is my biggest problem. And not new, no new circumstances can redeem us from that. We need a substitute. And that's why the gospel tells you we have all fallen short. The biggest problem we have is the sin inside of us, which means we need our redemption to come from outside of us. If I'm the problem and my best thinking got me here, if I look to me to fix it, I'm going to dig a deeper hole. I need someone to deliver me. Because the problem is first and foremost in here. The number one oppressor that I face is the sin that lives in me. Because what was the difference between Egypt and Israel? Was Israel the good guys and Egypt the bad guys? <laughs> the difference between Israel and Egypt was the blood of the lamb, was the grace of another. And so substitution teaches us a few things. One, it teaches us, I can't deliver or save myself. My best efforts got me here into this mess. I've incurred a debt that I cannot pay. You think student loans and how heavy that burden is? This is worse. I'm enslaved and need redemption. I need someone to free me from sin because my sin is serious, so serious that it can't be dealt with by just the works of my hands. I need someone to die, which teaches me what we really need to see today. I'm no better than anyone else. I can't look down on anyone if I really understand the gospel. Even the worst person I might think of, I could easily be that person. 
one through five give us gospel clarity. That's holy ground. When you start to understand that, you're starting to understand the gospel. You're starting to get it. And then we see the Lord will provide. God provides the lamb. The unblemished lamb of God has taken my place. I am free because of Jesus. My enslavement, over. I've been delivered. I've experienced a new exodus. My debt, paid. It's dealt with. I have been covered. One through five are that moment of gospel clarity. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate that, and I thought, no better place than the movie Toy Story 3. In Toy Story 3, if you're familiar, they're all banded together and they're headed toward the incinerator. They realize they're hopeless to redeem themselves. And they're headed toward the incinerator. And if you know what happens in the movie, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Toy Story 3 by now, but that's on you. What happens? The claw, right? The three little aliens, operate the little toys, operate the claw and they pluck them out of certain death. Now, who knew Toy Story 3 could teach us the gospel? Jesus is the claw. Jesus is the one who plucks us out of certain death. But even more so, he's the one who goes to the incinerator and absorbs all the wrath so that now we can have life, we experience grace. So when we realize this is what we do in our best thinking, is get us into this place, it gives us gospel clarity. And it changes us when we realize we've been plucked out of that. This is why we need the gospel over and over again. That's why the gospel is for Christians. And we see the substitution everywhere. When we actually experience it, we get to show it off. In John 15, he tells his disciples before his death, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is transformative love. I don't know, he, he might mean die for someone, he might. But I think all the more he means, do what I've done, which is willful, cost-absorbing grace. Show one another willful, choose to do it, cost-absorbing, I'm gonna lay down my right to this, grace. And you can only do that if you know Christ. You can only do that if you have experienced him taking your place. Then you can do substitution like this and show it to others. Galatians 6 gives us another picture of this. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, you who know Jesus, should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, the law of loving your brother as yourself, loving them as Christ has loved you. But here's what, we gotta see this grace in this passage. If someone is caught in a sin, what? What should I do? And it is not condemnation, it is restoration. It is not alienation, it is proximity and burden sharing. It is not scoffing pride, I would never do that. It is gentleness. Because no one's life and no one's heart has ever been changed by being looked down upon. But when we experience this grace, we get to give it away. So we actually can be 
substitutes for others. We need a little help, Ben. Just a few examples. One, maybe we have some toddlers in the room, of this willful cost-absorbing grace is covering over the messes of your kids. Absorbing the, the cost, showing them grace when they least deserve it because God showed us grace when we least deserve it. And I guarantee you, our children will remember that far more than anything else we do when we cover over their sins and absorb that, co that cost. Or how about if you had a roommate, we've all had roommates that are lazy on the old dishes. And man, if that time goes by, that bitterness starts to really, oh, I do my dishes. I'm better than them. They got to do their dishes. What if, look at that mess and say, I'm covering it. I'm stepping in. I'm taking their place. I'm going to do their dishes and I'm going to lay down my right to be upset about it. Or, and this happened in marriages or within families, how often have we screwed up? Been in that place where it's like, what I deserve, I know what I deserve is I told you so. I said that was going to happen. What if we substitute, we take place, we absorb the cost, and we lay down our right to say, I told you so. And we move toward, we restore gently because if nothing changes hearts less than looking, being looked down upon, nothing changes hearts more than grace, more than this willful cost absorbing. We get to show what we've experienced to others. And it will be hard, which is why I think we conclude our theme of lamb and substitute here. In Revelation, the end of the Bible. In verse 17, it says, For the lamb at the center of their throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That willful cost-absorbing grace laying down life feels like losing. But when we look at Revelation 7, 17, we see what seemed like Jesus' greatest loss, his death on the cross, laying down of his life was his greatest gain. And he becomes the ruler and he is our shepherd. And now when we practice that willful cost absorbing grace and we're feeling the pain of it, we can look to him and know he's been there and he's gonna wipe every tear from my eyes. That's our substitute savior and that's what Exodus teaches us as it announces the gospel in advance that God and his grace will cover over us, will take away our nakedness and our sin and our shame and our rebellion and instead make us people who say, Lord, be my shepherd. Help me to show you off to others. So as we close in gospel response, first, have you seen your need for a substitute? Are you tired? of trying to dig yourself out of the hole that you keep digging deeper? Are you seeing today in the gospel, maybe for the first time with gospel clarity, wow, my best thinking just keeps getting me in a worse hole. And I can look to Jesus as the one who covers my sin, who takes it away and gives me new life. Today can be the day you put your faith in him. You can say, I need the blood of the lamb to cover my sin. And today you can be declared right with God simply by putting your faith in Christ and responding to that moment of gospel clarity. And for those of us who have, we need this again and again. 
We need to recognize our needs. So what would it look like then for us? And get creative in your imagination. Who's that person in your life you could step in for? You could put yourself in their place, absorb the cost of something they've done to you and show them the grace of Christ that you've experienced. What would it look like for you to demonstrate Christ's substitutionary love this week as you've been refreshed by the word of grace? We're gonna move now to a time of communion. At Hope, we practice what we call open communion. So that uh, the cups in the, are up here with the juice and the wafer. The juice represents Christ's blood that was shed for us. The bread represents Christ's body that was broken for us. At Hope, we just ask that, you, we don't ask that you'd be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that you'd be the one, one who has called upon Jesus, who's put your faith in Christ. We'd love to have you join us in this communion meal. And as we move to that, I want to read from a section of the greater Passover. Jesus and the Lord's Supper. But I don't want to read from the Bible. I actually want to read from uh, author Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this in the Jesus Storybook Bible of the Lord's Supper when Jesus dines with his disciples. It says, Then Jesus picked up some bread and broke it. He gave it to his friends. He picked up a cup of wine and thanked God for it. He poured it out and shared it. My body is like this bread, it will break, Jesus told them. The cup of wine is like my blood, it will pour out. But this is how God will rescue the whole world. My life will break and God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart and your hearts will heal. Just as the Passover lamb died, so now I will die instead of you. My blood will wash away all of your sins. And you'll be clean on the inside in your hearts. So whenever you eat and drink, remember, Jesus said, I've rescued you. Friends, we're saved by the blood of the lamb, nothing else. So as we take of these elements, as we take of this new Passover meal representing Christ's body and blood and his substitutionary sacrifice for us, I want us to be reminded of his eagerness to step in for his friends. And when we understand that, then we are willing and committed to do the same. As we take communion, one last thing. Uh, what well, we typically, we encourage you to consider reflecting, praying, confessing sin, uh, worshiping with God. I will say though, you're gonna wanna get that done by the end of the first song. We're gonna sing two songs you're really gonna to wanna to sing the second song. The first song is great too, but you're gonna to wanna to be done to sing the second song. Andrew's got something for us and it's, it's gonna be great. So I'm gonna pray and we'll continue on with the communion meal. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality that you are the God who will provide. And when we were in complete need from deliverance from the oppressors of sin and death, you sent your son, who is the lamb of God, who has taken away our sin. And that when we put our trust in him, we, you look at us as holy. There's nothing more we need to do than trust in you for the forgiveness of sins. And so God, I pray that because of that good news, you would carry us into a greater worship of you and that you'd help us to step in with that love for others this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.